Now this is a recording made at the dinner hour meeting at the chapter of the open book and we have been up till now looking, taking large steps through the opening chapters of the epistle to the Romans. I've asked the friends at this meeting if they will bear with me while I repeat just rapidly where we have come so that those of you who are listening may join in with us as we study together Romans the 8th chapter. The way in which we step through the first five chapters of Romans may help you to appreciate where we've got now, that we took the key word righteousness, and in the first chapter, verses 16 and 17, our thoughts were concentrated in the two words, righteousness revealed. And that constitutes the gospel. God has revealed a way of righteousness for unrighteous men. The next was a larger section, the end of chapter 1, the whole of chapter 2 and a part of chapter 3, we denominated that righteousness required. And it summed up that all the world brought in guilty before God. Then righteousness received. It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And how is righteousness ours, the work of Christ on our behalf? Chapter 4, reckoned. You'll find the word translated reckoned, or counted, or imputed. Reckoned. And then chapter 5, the first half of it, righteousness in leading to reconciliation. Well, that's as much as we can do in our limited time to bring you together with us in the five chapters of Romans. Well, now, toward the end of Romans 5, we have the words condemnation, but superabounding grace. And the word therefore with which Romans the 8th chapter starts, is really, logically, a link from the end of Romans 5. In Romans 5 we have condemnation. In Romans 8 there is therefore now no condemnation to a certain class of people. But, chapters 6 and 7 intervene, and you put those into brackets, and they are the objections that are raised, because quite a number of people still have argued in the same way that if a person is saved by grace without works, it will lead to a dissolute life. Well, the Apostle answers that straight away in chapter 6. He, he says, if you have believed this gospel, you haven't merely changed your religion or changed your opinion, you've died with Christ, and how could you live into that which you die? Well, that's as far as we can go with what is gone and unrecorded. Now we come to Romans the 8th chapter. And we have ten minutes in front of us, so if I have to speak rather rapidly, I'm making a concession to your intelligence, because you are a very wonderful people who are able to take the whole of Romans 8 in ten minutes. Now you have in front of you a chart in which you will see an analysis at the bottom, don't look at the top, the bottom, Romans 8 verses 1 to 39. And I would like you to notice one feature that dominates the whole of this chapter, and that is the word son. S-O-N. It comes in the word adoption, uh, as you will see by the letter in there, but we'll take that in a moment or two. <clears throat> the Son of God. If you go right back to the beginning, and you will look at the very the book of Proverbs, uh, you will read toward the end of the book of Proverbs, that when God laid the foundations of the earth, the uh, writer says, and what is his name, this one who did it? And what is his son's name? Now that wasn't slipped in just to say something. The son. Who is the son? 
And when you get to the last word of the Bible concerning the purpose of the ages, which you find in 1 Corinthians 15, then cometh the end, then cometh the end, when the Son shall yield up a perfect universe to the Father, that God may be all in all. So from the beginning of creation to the end of the purpose of the ages, the whole is vested in him who is called the Son. I go back for a moment to the year 1900 and the month November, and I turned into Exeter Hall that was then existing, and I sat and I heard a man say for the first time in my life, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. I didn't know the definition of the word believe. I had not the slightest idea of the word incarnation. If you'd have said to me, what's redemption or atonement mean, or do they differ, I wouldn't know. But it proved all that was necessary for me to pass from death unto life by simply knowing that if I believed on the Son of God, that would happen. All as much have come out of that since. But don't forget, this is the one issue. If you turn to Romans, the first chapter, you'll see that the Son is the theme of the Gospel. The first three verses, Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the Gospel of God, brackets, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now we, we'll slip over those for the moment and read on separated unto the gospel of God concerning his Son. You see, we run away with the idea that the gospel is concerning our salvation. That's mixing up the remedy that you have in the bottle with the results, better health. The only, the only thing we need to know is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. John 3.16 doesn't tell you why. He doesn't tell you what he did. He simply says that statement. And summing up his gospel, John, in the 20th chapter, he says, These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing he might have life through his name doesn't tell you what he did. Or we know what he did by subsequent scriptures. But you see the insistence. It's no good preaching the cross without the Son of God. It's no good preaching the resurrection without the Son of God. He takes the whole burden and carries it right through to a glorious end. And so we could go on in this Romans you will find that, I think it is in the uh, same chapter, verse 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That's the second time, the gospel of his Son. And then leaping to chapter 5, uh, verse 10, uh, he says, um, but if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. And now we come to Romans the 8th chapter and we read, there is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I'll have to speak about that later. For the law of the Spirit of Christ in uh, life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son. That's the answer. Now that's all got to be explained, and it's rather involved. But you see, he's reading... The one thing that means that you can be exempt from condemnation is that he sent his son and condemned sin in the flesh. Not of yours, but in his. Now, if you look at this uh, outline at the bottom of this chart, you will see no condemnation. God sent his own son. Notice the expression, his own son. Now, when you turn to the end, where he sums it all up after having gone through a series of steps, 
Verse 31. What should we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son. Now he says, delivered him up for us all. In the first case, condemned sin in the flesh. So it says, verse 34, who is he that condemneth? And what's the answer? It is Christ that died. So it begins and ends on that note. No condemnation. Who can condemn? And with the second, the last reference of condemnation goes the parallel question, no separation. Blessed be God. Well now we come back on our track and we'll look at verses 5 to 15 and see that the word son is still there. It will not be possible to read all these verses because of the flight of time. But if you will notice that it says in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So now, any person who wants to know whether he has his birth certificate, he doesn't go into the secrets of God, he doesn't look into a book of the elect, but he knows whether he is led by the Spirit of God. And you say, how do you do that? Oh, that needs another search, because we don't get whisperings of the Spirit, we don't get visions and revelations, we have got the book which the Spirit has given us. And if we are guided by that Spirit, we are sons of God. You remember writing to the Thessalonians in the first chapter, Paul said, knowing, beloved, your election of God. How do you know that? Oh, he said, I know that by the way you receive the gospel. You see? You're led by the Spirit of God. My other things come out of it, but that's the great thing. So we have the Spirit of God and its leading now. Now if you look at the 29th and 30th verse, which is the balance in this arrangement, you see, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what is true now in small measure is going to be true then in its great and vast measure. That every believing child of God is going to be conformed at long last to the image of the Son of God. It doesn't matter whether you're going to be blessed with the meek who shall inherit the earth, or whether you'll be among the overcomers in the heavenly Jerusalem, or whether you're the church of the one body seated far above all, there'll be one conformity, conformity to the image of his Son. Well, then we take another step because of time. And the third item, the Spirit itself beareth witness. What does that bear witness? He says, uh, um, verse 15, For we have not received the Spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God the sons of God. And the word adoption includes in itself the word son. If you'll notice the, the word here is quios, that's the word for son in English letters. Quiotestia is adoption. It means to put a child in, his, in the will and appoint him the heir to the property, the firstborn's position and whatnot. All this will have to come out in subsequent studies. And then if you look down you'll find the adoption comes again here and it's just in exactly its right place, and the Spirit itself comes exactly in the right place. 22. The verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. What's that? The redemption of the body. 
And verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth helpeth our infirmities. And we have further down, uh, we know what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession. The Spirit itself groaneth and helps us and intercedes. Well, that brings us to the central reference, and we've just about a, a moment or two to touch upon this. It focuses from either end, no condemnation, no condemnation, and in the center, glory. And this is not merely waiting for the Son of God, but waiting for the sons of God. For the Son of God and the sons of God are vitally linked together in glory. So shall we look at that passage, 17 to 21. And if we are children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which are revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature or of creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. It's just on time, not the train coming in at Houston. But you see, this is a magnificent chapter, isn't it? And all I could possibly hope to do in the limited time was to just focus on, on these great outstanding passages. And every one of them is dominated by the word son. Well, if you've got that, friends, you've got all I could ever tell you if we go on here as long as Methuselah lived. For all the word of God from Genesis to Revelation is an unfolding of God's purpose in his son. But blessed are we if we have the simplest conception as, as I started my Christian life straight off. He that believeth on the son hath everlasting life.